0: Day. We're going to do the same thing that we did a month ago when it was Mother's Day, and we're going to keep our kids with us in church, whereas we would normally dismiss them at this point to head upstairs for kids' crew. We're going to keep them with us, and then next week we will have kids' crew. Normally our cycle is we do kids' crew for our kids' sixth grade and under the first three weeks of the month, and then the fourth week they're here with us. But we wanted them to, to be here with us and all of our families to be together together So we're keeping everybody in the room today and uh, and we're going to have kids crew next Sunday on the fourth Sunday of the month instead. We're going to be in Esther chapter 4, the very end of Esther chapter 4 into chapter 5 this morning as we keep our study in the book of Esther moving forward. So I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Esther chapter 4, we're going to pick up the very tail end of chapter 4 and then get into chapter 5 and and even continue to follow the story all the way through chapter 8 this morning and Esther, as we are working our way through this, one of the things that we identified early in our study in Esther a few weeks ago, in fact, the very first message that I preached in Esther, I, I told you that there were three things that we would see, three themes that would be seen again and again in the story of Esther, and they were concerning god 's power god 's promise. And God's providence at work in the life of his people. And even this morning, as we see really the 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 climax of the drama in the book of Esther, in the in the scripture that we're gonna study this morning, we will see this at work. We will see God's power demonstrated through his faithfulness to his promise, as his people experience his hand of providence. Working on their behalf, so all of these pieces of the puzzle that we've been looking at will come together in, in in a way of thinking, a manner of thinking this morning as we study in Esther and we we zero in on what's happening here. And so uh, we'll begin with that in, in Esther chapter four in just a minute. Before we do that, I want to get your mind maybe moving in the direction that we're going to be studying this morning, and I want you to think about a time in your life when you've been faced with an important decision. Okay. Think about a time in your life when, when you've had a really big decision in front of you. You've been faced with, with, with whatever kind of choice, whatever kind of decision. Maybe it was about a job. You know. Maybe the choice was concerning a, taking a position or, or uh, passing over a position. letting a, Maybe it was related to your work. Maybe it was about a move. Maybe moving your, your family even, perhaps, or, or making a, a physical relocation of some sort. Maybe a, a choice about a relationship. Maybe a relationship that needed to end or beginning a, a relationship or, or re- the, the many relationship choices we face. Maybe, maybe what comes to mind for you is, is a, a big purchase, right? Maybe purchasing a home, purchasing a, a car, uh, something of that nature. Maybe, maybe for some, when you think about big choices that you've been faced with, big decisions that you faced, maybe in your mind you think about choices related to your own health, or the health of a loved one, right? Maybe, maybe treatment. Do you pursue it? Do you not? Maybe a loved one in a situation where. What do we do for them? What What are what are the choices? Even sometimes that we have to make on their behalf if they become, if they become physically incapable of making those choices. The, the truth is that we're all faced with, with choices in life, and sometimes we come to that crossroads of sorts where we're faced with. What, what feels like a, a really large decision, and we have an awareness in that moment that whatever I choose here, the, the consequences are bigger than just this moment and this choice there will be There will be consequences down the line, things that will happen or may not happen down the line that that hinge in, in some way on this choice and so when we when we face those, of course we, 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 we really tend to uh, we, we pray more, we, we think about those things deeper, we, 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 we grasp the weight of what's at stake. You know, today being Father's Day, I think about the choices that fathers make. I think about the choices that we make as dads. And, and sometimes they're the inglamorous choices, right? Sometimes as dads, we're, we're faced with difficult decisions that will affect the family as well. Uh, I think about some of those choices in my own life. In fact, really for me, where my mind went when I started thinking about this this, this idea of a big decision and, and knowing that this would be Father's Day, my mind went to my first Father's Day and, and thinking about that, that weight of realization that, that all the dads can relate to when you realize that somebody else's life now depends on me. Like, I could really, uh, I really have the power here to either help this person or to ruin their life, right? And that's a, that's a pretty big weight for anyone to shoulder. And I remember feeling that when when, uh, when Pike was born and, and thinking to myself, really kind of like, oh man, you know, I, I don't know a better way to put it. I, I, there was a, a fear, is maybe a, a good way to put that, a healthy fear, right? But that, that motivating factor that says, I've got to have my stuff together because now there's somebody else here who's who, who is depending on me to, to do things right. We all face decisions in life. Well, what, what we see in the text this morning and where we left off last week and really picked the story up again this week is this moment of decision where Esther is faced with a choice. But this isn't just a small choice that Esther is faced with. In fact, this is monumental. This is once-in-a-lifetime type of choice that Esther is faced with. And the consequences of Esther's decision here have a a bigger effect than even just Esther's own life. In fact, we literally could say that Esther's own life hangs in the balance on this decision because here she is in a situation where she is uniquely positioned to be able to appeal to the king on behalf of her own life and and her people. But it's not just Esther's life that hangs in the balance. See, if Esther were to approach the king without being summoned for, without being called for, she would be guilty of the highest form of treason, and, would be, and it would be punishable by death unless the king were to extend his scepter to her as a sign that she is allowed, she is permitted. This was the custom of the day in the court of the king of the Persian Empire, and, and yet Esther has not been called into the king's presence in over 30 days, and so She's faced with this decision. Do I appear before the king without being summoned? Knowing that her life would, would be on the line. But not only her own life, but the life of her people as well. Because if you remember, the people that the, the, the Israelites, the Jews as they're called here at this point, because of this is after the exile, they they are essentially sentenced to death at the hand of Haman, who is second in charge over all of the Persian Empire. Haman has a hatred for Mordecai because Mordecai didn't honor him, because Mordecai didn't bow down to him or pay homage to him and treat him with the respect that Haman thought that he was owed. And so he sought to kill Mordecai, but not only Mordecai, but Mordecai's entire people, his entire race. As a people, he wanted to have them wiped out. And so he signed an edict and sealed it with the mark of the king and had it sent throughout the the entire empire, the entire all the provinces, 127 provinces, that on a certain day at the end of the year, all of the Jews would be killed. And so with that hanging in the balance, literally not only her own life, but literally the lives of her people, of her entire race of people, Esther is now faced with the point of decision. And yet, as we've already said, we will see God's power demonstrated through his faithfulness to his promise as his people experienced his hand of providence at work on their behalf. And so let's examine this. We'll we'll begin by looking at Esther's decision. This is where we pick up in chapter 4, verse 15, basically where we left off in our study last week. We see Esther's decision. We read in chapter 4, verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so Esther makes the bold choice here to act. Now, you remember last week we saw that Mordecai says to her that, Esther, you have to act. In fact who knows but that god has placed you in this position for such a time as this and esther's response is one of boldness one of bravery here so esther's decision was to was to act esther's decision was to place her own life on the line by by choosing to appear before the king though she was not summoned though she was not called for so that she might beg for the life of her people not only herself but also her people. And, and she even acknowledges that, that she doesn't know what will happen, right? There, she, she cannot control the outcome. She simply must trust God and trust her life in the hands of the king. And so she says, if I perish, I perish, right? There's that recognition there. You know, we, we can relate in the sense that we are faced with decisions, and there are many times in in the decisions that we are faced with that we don't know exactly what the outcome will be. Now, I don't mean to imply that every decision that we face carries the same weight as what Esther is up against here. I want to acknowledge that this is a unique circumstance, a unique decision, a unique perspective of of what is happening here that God literally is going to superintend on that on behalf of Esther through her bravery and her boldness to act to save the entire Jewish people scattered throughout the Persian empire. And yet, I can think of times in my own life, as I'm sure you can in yours as well, when when you know that you need to act, when you know that there's a decision that you have to face and and you truly have no idea how things will go, right? You you truly have no idea, even no control over the outcome. And that's a scary feeling. It's scary to be in a situation where you know there's a big decision, you know there's a choice that you have to make, and, and so you've gotta trust God and act on faith not knowing exactly how things will turn out. What Esther decides to do here is to is to act. Now again it doesn't it doesn't say this uh, it doesn't say this, but I certainly think it's implied the, the, the thread of, of God's hand that's at work in all of this, the understanding that Esther is trusting her life into God's hands here. This is bigger than just Esther and her choice. This is bigger than just King Xerxes and his mood at the moment and how he's feeling. There's the understanding here that unless God were to intervene on Esther's behalf, surely she will die. And yet, if she doesn't act, if she doesn't act, then her entire, her entire uh, people, we'll call them, the entire Jewish race could, could perish. And so Esther is faced with a decision. But You know, there's another decision here that, though it is certainly not the main point of this text, because it is Father's Day, I want to highlight even another decision that's at work behind the scenes here in all of this, and and that's with Mordecai and and this character of Mordecai and the role that Mordecai plays in Esther's life. Mordecai was not Esther's biological father. In fact, we learn in chapter 2 that Mordecai was raising Esther, who was the daughter of his uncle, and when her parents passed, he took her in as his own daughter. So essentially, Mordecai is Esther's cousin, their first cousins, but he's old enough, older than Esther by enough, I suppose, that, that he was like a father figure, and so when Esther's parents passed, he took her in and raised her as his own. And, and I want to I, I in, in a way highlight and also really celebrate the role that Mordecai has played in all of this as well. Not just in Esther's bravery and her faithfulness and her willingness to step out trusting God, but also in Mordecai's faith in God and what God will do here. Remember that we saw last week that Mordecai says to Esther in chapter 4 verse 13, do not think to yourself that In the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai believes in faith that God will deliver the Jews some other way, but he knows that unless Esther were to act, she would perish. he says in in, in verse 13 as well, excuse me, verse 14, but you and your, uh, he says, Deliverance will come from another place, but you and your father's house will also perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? There's a boldness and a faith in Mordecai's life. And, and I don't think that it's I don't think that it is any coincidence that the boldness and the faith that we see Esther take comes through Mordecai and his influence in her life, right? Here is a man who has adopted Esther as his own, who has raised her as his daughter, who has who has taught her what it means to follow the Lord, to honor him, to live by faith, and even to act in boldness. And can I just say to the dads in the room in in the world that we live in today in 2016 we need more dads who follow the example of Mordecai more men who understand that it's our job to pass on our faith to pass on that kind of boldness and that willingness to our children and to those around us. And even though Esther was not Mordecai's by blood, she was his because he took her in and he was being a father to her. And and whether whether I'm talking about in situations where, where it's with your own children or in the lives of others that you impact, men, we need to accept the challenge to pass on our faith, to live with boldness and courage and conviction and to pass that on to others around us. That's what our world needs. That's what our culture needs, is for men to step up and do our part. In fact, you look at the the brokenness that we see in the world around us today, so many of the problems that we're facing as a culture, as a society. And I think that the greatest answer is not for politicians to do their part. It's not for social programs or reforms or other things. I think if more men would step up and do their job, a lot of the problems that we face as a world would, would disappear. So may we as men learn from the example of Mordecai, who has this boldness, this belief in faith in what God will do and he passes it on to Esther. Esther's life was impacted by that, certainly. And, and no doubt, it, it played a huge role in the decision that she makes here. And that's not the main point of this message, but I couldn't, I couldn't skip that. I couldn't pass over that, uh, given that it's Father's Day. So you get that part for free, right? Uh, so we see Esther's decision here in the passage. To act on faith, to be bold, even though she knows ultimately that She has no control over the outcome. But not only do we see Esther's decision, we also see through this story Haman's downfall. Haman's downfall. Haman was the second in command of the entire Persian kingdom, the the entire Persian, Medo-Persian empire. And as such, Haman considered himself uh, not only to say royal or regal, but he considered himself above everyone else and especially above Mordecai, whom he, whom he despises, because Mordecai will not bow down to him, because Mordecai would not honor him or worship him the way that everyone else would when they saw Haman. And so in chapter 5, we go on to see, as the story plays out, that Esther goes before the king, and we see God's hand of providence at work, because as Esther appears before the king, the king who has the power of of, of Esther's life in his hands extends the scepter, extends his royal scepter as a sign that Esther is allowed in his presence. And not only does he allow her in his presence, but then he goes on to say this, "'My queen, what is it that you wish? I will give you anything up to half of my kingdom.'" He's, he's willing here to give her anything that she desires. Certainly, we see God's hand at work in the heart of a, of a wicked and, and a boastful king that he would offer that sort of thing to Esther who had no right even to be in his presence. Esther's response is, if it pleases the king, would, would you and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare in your honor? And so the king agrees to do this. The king, and and he summons Haman to come with him. And at this feast, Esther honors them. She prepares a a meal for them to celebrate them. And then after the feast is over, as they are sitting and drinking wine, which again was a part of the custom of how they would do things, the king brings up the question again to Esther. Esther, my queen, what is it that you desire? I will give you anything, up to half of my kingdom. And there's a tension that we see in the story at that point where we wonder, okay, is this going to be the moment where Esther says, well, king, my life is is, is at stake here because of what Haman has done. And there's that, that tension, that moment as the climax, as the plot thickens, the climax builds here in, in, in the tension in the story. And Hester's response was, King, if it pleases you would, you, would you come again? Allow me to prepare another meal. It doesn't say this in the story. We're left to try to figure out exactly what Esther is doing and what's motivating her choices here. But I personally feel when I read this story and I see all that's unfolding, I think that we, we see the, the reality that Esther is wrestling with this because she knows that that she's about to expose a powerful man and that that literally, that this may not go well for her. Haman is a part of that, that same group that advised the king to depose the former queen, Queen Vashti. This is a man who has already once put away one queen. He could put her away as well. This is a man who has a great amount of power and influence in the kingdom. And so Esther is wrestling, it appears, with, with this decision and, and worry and, and, and doubts that no doubt all of us, any of us, would have had if we were in The same situation. But Haman, who was an evil, a wicked man, wasn't satisfied with the honor that that Esther gave him. He was, instead, he was desiring of something more. And so look in chapter 5, verse 9, that we see the the beginning of Haman's downfall here as he comes to the forefront of the story. It says, chapter 5, verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him. And now he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, "'Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king.'" the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So the, the, the 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 tension builds, the plot thickens now, because Haman is filled with wrath against Mordecai, and he's devised a plan to have Mordecai killed the very next morning. He has this gallows constructed so that he might have Mordecai hanged. And yet, God intervenes on behalf of Mordecai and Esther and his people, because we see in chapter 6 that that very night... The king, Xerxes, was troubled. That very night, he could not sleep. And so, in his insomnia, he called for his servants to read from him from the annals of the book of the king. In other words, the the record of all the things that had happened in his kingdom. And as they were reading these stories of what had happened, which no doubt were stories of the greatness of Xerxes and his power and his riches and the vastness of his kingdom, they come upon this story from earlier in the book of Esther of when Mordecai foiled the plot by some of the king's closest advisors to assassinate him and the role that Mordecai played in saving the king's life. And the king, in the middle of the night, decides that he wants to do something to honor this man, he asks the question, what did we ever do to honor Mordecai for this? And the response by his servants was, nothing, essentially. And so Mordecai, in the middle of the night, or rather Xerxes, in the middle of the night, summons Haman into his presence. Haman, his, his second in command, his vice president, if you will. And he says to Haman, Haman, what should be done for a man who who is great in the kingdom? What should be done for a man who is honorable? And Haman, who is drunk on his own power, drunk on the, the idea of his own greatness, thinks to himself, who else could the king possibly be talking about but, but me, right? And so Haman says this, thinking that he will be the recipient of all these things. He says, oh king, for the one that you wish to honor, you should summon for royal robes to be put on him and a royal horse and place a ring on his hand and parade him about in the streets so that everyone will know that this is what the king does to honor those who worship and who honor him the king likes this response and so he says to Haman very good then that's exactly what I want you to do for Mordecai can you imagine in that moment Haman's response now this man who is his arch enemy, the man he despises, to the point that not only did he make plans to kill Mordecai, but to wipe out Mordecai's entire people. And now he must honor Mordecai. He must, he must celebrate him in, in this way. And yet he does. He he honors Mordecai, he parades him about in the streets the next morning, whereas Mordecai was literally facing death, now he's being paraded about the streets of Susa by the very man who who has plotted to kill him. And Haman is enraged by this. We read at the very end of chapter 6 that after Haman returned, Mordecai, Haman went home at broken, his head covered. He was broken. He was angry. He was Furious, and he complained to his wife about these things. And Zeresh's response is very telling at the end of chapter six because she says this to him: "If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him." Again, there is this recognition, even on behalf of of, of a pagan woman like like Zeresh, that if God is behind this, if the God of the Jews is behind this, Haman, there's nothing that you can do to stop this. But it goes from there. We see the rest of the story of Haman's downfall. Let's read in chapter seven. It says, so the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. This is the next day, I remind you. This is the second feast that Esther has prepared. In fact, no sooner had Haman arrived home and told Zeresh, Of all these things, and his anger burned at Mordecai for what had just happened. But now, the servants of the king arrived to take him off to this dinner that has been prepared. We read in verse 2, And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther, the Queen Esther, answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said to him, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman... Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left his mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Haman's downfall was driven by his greed, by his arrogance, by his presumption by his lust for more, and and even ultimately by his anger that he turned against Mordecai. It's as if Haman had turned his anger against God himself. And God not only steps in on behalf of his people to preserve them, not only does God act on behalf of his people to save them in this sense, but he deals justice to Haman for all that Haman has done. This man who... Seemingly in the eyes of men, there was was none who could rival Haman, right? Second in command only to the king himself, to king Ahasuerus. And yet, Haman's power is no match for the hand of a mighty God. And so Haman experiences his downfall. But then the third part of the story that I want us to see today, not only do we see Esther's decision, Haman's downfall, but ultimately the Jews' deliverance through God's hand. Chapter 8. We read that on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. A second time now, right, she appears when when she's not summoned for And he said, and she said, rather, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the things seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman... And they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So now the king is moved by the providential hand of God not only to save Esther, not only to save and promote Mordecai, but to spare the the entire Jewish people. And so... Through this, we see the the Jews' deliverance, which is undoubtedly not only at the hand of the king, but because of the hand of God at work on behalf of his people. So, follow what happens here Esther is uniquely situated, uniquely positioned to act. She steps out on faith, not knowing exactly what the outcome will be, but knowing that if she didn't act, her people would perish. And through her faithfulness and her boldness, God works not only to bring about the downfall of his enemies, but to deliver his people. Now, Mordecai was right when he said to Esther that if she did not act, that deliverance of God would come from somewhere else, because God was going to remain faithful to the promise that he has made to his people. And yet, because Esther acted, it was through her that God worked. When we look at the story of Esther and we begin to think about, okay, how do I take this story and apply it in my life? We we need to understand that God is not dependent upon us to do the work that he has determined to do. But if we fail to act, then we will miss out on being a part of what God is doing. We will miss out on being a part of God's redemptive work and his redemptive plan in the lives of people. See, we, each one of us, like Esther, are uniquely positioned, uniquely positioned as people who have responded by faith to the gospel, as people who have placed our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ. We are uniquely positioned to act on behalf of those who are lost and dying because of their sin. Sometimes we tend to think that, we we tend to think and act as if, as if, you know, that the, the gospel is intended to make us better, and, and it even causes us to puff our chest a little bit and, and think highly of ourselves because we think, well, God saved me, and that makes me good. And, and what we fail to acknowledge is that Christ didn't die to make us good. He died because we were dead. He died to give us life. And in this story, we see that God's hand was at work in the life of his people to deliver them, and that that deliverance came through the boldness and the action of one of his children through, through Esther. Similarly, we are uniquely positioned as the people of God to share the life that comes, the hope that comes through Christ with a lost and dying world. And if we don't act, let's be clear, God will continue to work somewhere else through someone else. If we sit by silently, the gospel, the good news of Jesus will continue to go forth until the time that Christ comes again because that's what has been promised in the word of God. And yet, if we do act in boldness, then we become participants in God's work of redemption. When I look at the story of Esther, I find the gospel all over the story of Esther. Though this happens hundreds of years before Jesus comes, we find the story of the gospel all over Esther because Esther is ultimately a story about redemption. It's about how God redeems his people who have been sentenced to death through the faithfulness and the boldness of this young queen When I look at our lives and I think about us and how we can connect, we can relate in so many ways that if we will act, if we will have the kind of faithfulness, if we will have the kind of boldness that we see in Esther's life, then we too become participants in God's story of redemption. See, the the Lord is at work around us to redeem people from the curse of sin. God is at work all around us redeeming people, saving them from their their brokenness and their sins, saving them from the lostness, saving all of those who would call on him by faith, and if we, would, if we would act in boldness and in faith according to God's direction in our lives, then we get to become participants. Not that you and I can save anyone. We couldn't even save ourselves, and yet God will work through us to display his glory and his greatness to work so that lives will be saved, so that people will be touched and moved and receive the, the, the power of Christ at work in them. We become participants in that sense. We, we we join in the work that God is doing. In the story, I see, I see the boldness of Esther, but it, it points me toward Jesus. It points us toward Christ. Jesus is a new and, and better Esther, because just as Esther placed her life on the line to save her people, Jesus, too, placed his life on the line to save us from the curse of sin, and yet... Though Esther's life was ultimately spared, God spared not his own son to save us, to ransom us from our sin. Romans chapter 8, we, we read this, that what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, Romans eight thirty two. he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, God gives us everything when he gives us Jesus because he did not spare his own son on the cross because he'd offered him up his life as payment for our sin so that you and I might be forgiven and set free. We see the hand of God at work in the story of Esther and redemption, but we see all the more powerfully that it points us to Jesus who is a new and better Esther because he gave his life for, for us that we might be redeemed from the curse. The, the sentence of death that we faced was broken when Jesus offered himself on the cross in our place. And today, if you're here and you've never responded by faith, and I pray that you would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that by faith you would place your trust in him, that you would acknowledge him as Lord and Savior of your life, that today you would respond by surrendering your life to him and receiving what the Bible calls in this same book of Romans, the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do you do that? It's simply by acknowledging him as Lord and Savior, by trusting in him, acknowledging that you can never hope to save yourself but that you don't have to because Jesus paid the price for you on the cross of Calvary. And if today, if you're ready to surrender your life to Christ, then in a moment when we have our time of response, our time of invitation, I pray that you would come. You can take me and take Brad by the hand. We would love to pray with you and walk you through a simple prayer of, of repentance, acknowledging Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe you're here today and you've done that, but when you read the story and you see the boldness of Of Esther, it's a reminder to you that God has uniquely positioned you in the lives of people that you know, in the circumstances, in the situation where you are. God has uniquely positioned you that you might be the one that would share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are around you. Haman's words ring true. If we don't act, deliverance will come from somewhere else, but may it never be. May God work through us. May he use us and our example and our boldness and our courage to share the love of Christ with others. As we understand that people around us, apart from a saving knowledge of Christ, people are lost and destined for hell. Not just badness, not just moral ubiquity, not just somehow irrelevance, but hell itself awaits those who don't trust in Christ. And so may we as the people of God respond with faith and action as we trust in him. Maybe today you need to come and just be broken and poured out here at the altar for those in your life that you know need Christ. That God would give you boldness, that he would stir your heart to action, that you might be moved to share the gospel with them. However God is moving, in a moment when we have our our time of invitation, the opportunity for you to respond, I pray that you would come. I want to ask you now, if you would, to bow your head and close your eyes with me. I want to pray a prayer this morning, and in this prayer, essentially, what what I'm asking is this. God, give us the boldness to respond in the way that you're leading us, whether that is for you to surrender your heart and life to Christ, whether that is you to come and be broken over the lostness that you recognize around you. However that is, in whatever way that it is, God, would you give us the boldness, the courage to respond in the way that you are leading us? Pray with me now. Lord, I thank you that you did not spare your own son, yet you offered him up for us as payment for our sin. Lord, as payment for my sin. God, stir our hearts. Move us now to boldness to respond in faith and in action. Lord, give us the courage to respond in the way that you are calling us as we sense you at work in our lives today. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. As we stand to sing this song of invitation together, I invite you to come this morning to respond as God is stirring, as he's moving in your heart. We'll be here at the front ready to receive you. Our altars are open if you wanna come and pray. However God is moving, I challenge you, you respond to him in obedience today. He became sin for him now.